greetings and felicitations. Welcome to the Chairland Chronicles. I'm not dead yet. This is your host, Ben Hur, and this is the newest installment of my podcast. Oh my God, today's Sunday. It is June the 21st. Yeah. We just got, we made it through Juneteenth on Friday. But my week has been very, very weird. How weird? Well, let me tell you. It started on Tuesday. Um, Let me go back to Monday. Monday started off my first round of treatments on the new time, 3 hours, 45 minutes, at the higher flow rate. It has an effect. It just took its toll slowly. But let me jump back to Tuesday. Tuesday morning I had another round of... uh, Exams from the University Hospital Transplant Center, Dr. Raj, and she asked me a lot of. She was it was psychiatric. It was a she was a, psycho, a, a psychotherapist. So she was, uh, and I've said it before, a transplant is a multiphasic thing. You not only have to be well physically, and when it comes to the physical, I am okay, I could be better, I need to, I need, my, my goal at this point is to drop at least 60 pounds, actually more in my case, more like 70, because uh, my ideal, where I would like to be is an even 100 kilos, which would be, what, 220 pounds, I think that would be a fair assumption, uh, so besides physical health, you also need to be mentally adept to handle a transplant because a transplant requires you to be on top of everything. So, I suffer from PTSD that I acquired when I was in the Navy. I've never told anybody the details of the reason why I am the way I am, but I told her. She, She got it out of me and She shook a demon loose. And it's been plaguing me. And then what made things worse is I I converse with my mom quite a bit. And uh, she asked me point blank after treatment on Wednesday about my incident. And I divulged part of what happened. I didn't finish... There's a, there's a second part to that, to my story. Uh, but after I related it to her, it was very emotional for me. And I had that image. I kept, it just seemed that I kept reliving the incident over and over again. In my dreams, it was very harrowing. I mean, I was not sleeping well because every time I went back to sleep I was there again and uh, it just made things much much worse physically for me after the treatments on Wednesday I felt like a blank I felt good don't get me wrong I felt very I handled the treatment you know I got off my 3 hours 45 minutes I walked out of there with my head held high got home, I felt fine, and then the image started, images started playing back again in my head, and then I felt like a, just a big blank, I could see what was going on around me, I could hear what was going on around me, but I didn't really care what was going on around me, the way I explained it to my mom was that Imagine you're a stone in a, in a rushing river and the water's rushing all around and over you and you don't care because you're a stone. That's the way I felt. I was also very depressed. Very depressed. Oh my God. I didn't want to talk to anybody. So... Thursday, yeah, the day came and went. Friday, went to treatment, and I still felt bad when I came home. Uh, I just feel 
super washed out. And the worst part is I'll go to sleep for four hours. I'll wake up. Uh, now I wake up at three. I used to wake up at two, feeling refreshed. Now I wake up at three, and all I want to do is roll over and go back to sleep. I think that's the depression. I force myself up, and I go and I, I sit and watch TV. See, it's funny when you stop and think of it. I'm sitting there at treatment watching TV for four hours. So then I go home and I sleep for eight hours. Wake up so I can face the next day to watch TV again for ten hours. Uh, it's, it's tedious. It's monotonous. It's boring sometimes. But I have the desire to go out and do stuff in my yard and whatnot, but I don't have the energy. The energy just goes away. And you tell the doctors, and there's nothing they're going to do. There's nothing they can do for you. I mean, there might be something, but it means they would have to reduce your time or something's going to change. It's going to cause your body to react again. My body's going through changes. I got to get used to them. I got to anticipate what's coming and head it off before it hits. And that's the only way I'm going to beat this. It's rough. You know, you may have a grandpa or an uncle or somebody that goes to dialysis and looks great. But watch him, ask him questions of what goes on in the waiting room. That's when we talk. And that's when we tell each other what's, what's wrong. Because the doctors don't care. You know, uh, your family doesn't really care. There's nothing they can do. So we either suffer in silence or we bitch at each other about what bothers us because we understand, we get it. It's hard. It's not easy. So, I've been fairly depressed all weekend. And uh, then there was another incident I'm not going to go into. It's family-related. And I don't know. I seem to be at a crossroads again. I don't like being here. here. Here's the thing. I try to take absolute control of my life. I can't control every aspect, but what I can control, I try. When it comes to making decisions in my life for me, I make them. Because it's me they're going to affect, and it's me who has to live with them. Nobody else. That's the hardest part to get somebody to understand. Uh, when the decision came to go to the hospital to amputate my toe, I didn't think about it. Well, maybe for a few seconds. And then I said, take it. Let's do this. Where's the paperwork? I'm on a sign. When uh, I went to the hospital 10 years ago for my, because I was bleeding to death, the doctors asked, we need to open you up and look inside you and actually see what's going on. We don't know. Uh, the x-rays aren't telling us anything. Your blood work is not telling us anything. I said, let's do it. Give me the paperwork. Let's sign it. You know there's a risk. I know there's a risk. There's always a risk. You go to get a tooth pulled, there's a risk. You go to get your eyes examined, there's a risk. I understand there's a risk. I have to make, I don't have, I don't have the luxury of sitting back and asking 10 people what they think. Because honestly, it only matters what I think. When you're up against it and it involves you, you have to make a choice because it involves you, no one else. Not your wife, not your brother, not your sister, not your father. You. You've been there. You've had to make choices and you've had to live with the consequences. I'm prepared to do that because I have to be. I live a very precarious life. It could end at any moment. And I have to be prepared to make decisions that may involve giving up my life or giving up a part of myself to survive. I'm in survival mode. Uh, it's not easy being here, but choices have to be made and consequences have to be paid. That's life. That's always has been, always will be. You can't be looking over your shoulder. It's like I told you last episode. 
it's a linear existence. You go from point A to point B and you keep on going. You can look back, but you can't go back. There's a reason that you can't go back. Because you'd always be going back changing things. You can't do that. It's not fair. That's cheating. You have to live with what is and do the best you can with what you got. That's what I do. Uh, so, hopefully I can get back talking to the VA again and try to get back in with them because I know there was something wrong with me. Because when I mentioned to the doctor that I had PTSD, she asked me 10 ways from Sunday if I wanted to kill myself, have I thought about killing myself? How would I kill myself? And the answer was yes, I have thought about it. Yes, I tried it once. And no, I don't think I would do it at this point in time anymore simply because I think it's a coward's way out. I'm not a coward. At least I don't think so. So, I don't know if that's good or bad. It's not easy. You know, if you have to decide what car to get, do you want an SUV or do you want a sedan, those are fairly simple. When you have to decide which leg has to come off or which foot, or do I need to have a bypass? These are very hard questions with very simple answers, yes or no. And there are consequences and repercussions to everything. I get very emotional sometimes when I talk about this kind of stuff. Simply because when the time comes for me to cry, I only have myself to cry with. Nobody else. That's what happens when you grow up alone. I'm a lone wolf. If uh, somebody says they want to tag along, I usually say no. I move faster and and I move much, much more efficiently on my own than to take somebody that's going to drag me down. I don't do it to be mean. I just know how I am. There's a lot of people like that. Loners. My grandfather was a loner. I'm a loner. I was also a stoner. The stoner loner, I guess. But that was in my youth. And now I can look back and see a lot of mistakes. I can't go back and change them. I just have to live with them. But that's what we do. We move forward. We live with our mistakes. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say, I live without regret. I don't. I got a bag full of regrets and I carry it with me. You can, I open it up and I look at it and I see the regrets in my life. There's a lot of them. And they tend to be repetitious sometimes. I try to live my life that I don't make those same mistakes again. Sometimes I do. Most times I don't. But that's life once again. If you live your life with no regrets, I give you the floor. I give you mad props. I don't live that way. I can't. I don't think that I could feasibly live without regrets. Regrets have shaped me and made me who I am, good or bad. And there's a lot of people out there who live the same way because I see how you live. I see the outcome. And so I know you're in the same boat. But that's a week it's been for me. I hope tomorrow... It starts, starts off better. I have to put my faith in my God. And I'll say a prayer for him, to, for myself tonight, and for the rest of you too. And move forward. 
all I, all I can do is take one step at a time and see where that step takes me. I'll go in, I'll, I'll walk in an open door or I might not, I don't know, it just depends. So, there we are. Whoa, what a week I'm having, as that you might say. But the week is over, the new one starts tomorrow, and we'll go from there. Alright, that's it for this segment, I've bitched at you enough. Time to move on, time to put another step in front, and let's see where it goes. You're listening to the Chairland Chronicles, I'm not dead yet, I'm your host Ben Hur. Thanks for listening, stick around, we got more to come. And we're back. You're listening to the Chairland Chronicles. I'm not dead yet. I'm your host, Ben Hur, and welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Well, it's been a very busy, weird day, uh, Tuesday on the news. If you've been watching, it's complete anarchy out there. But what I'm going to talk about, I'm going to try to shift gear. There's a lot of things I really want to say about what's going on, but I'm going to try to steer away from that and get back to the purpose of the Chronicles, which is to show you what I'm going through so that way maybe you can make a few adjustments in your lifestyle that you don't have to. Really simple. So, uh, I've often mentioned... uh, there's actually three kinds of health that are con- they're concerned with at our clinic with the patients. Physical health, which means you go you go and do your treatments, you watch what you eat, you stay out of your medication, and uh, it's all good. Then there's your emotional health, your personal life, uh, wife, family, girlfriends, uh, home life, Work life, if you have one, if, if you work, many of us don't, but uh, some do. And then there's mental health. Mental because you have to have a be of clear mind as you go into this because, uh, as I found out, when you uh, have mental clarity, the transplant goes much, much smoother. When you're dealing with things like, in my case, PTSD, it makes things a little bit more difficult because your mind is not straight. And today, I had my last uh, meeting with Dr. Raj, who's a psychiatrist, or a psychologist, actually, with the University Hospital Systems Transplant Center. So... We had discussed last week my PTSD and how I had acquired it and this, that, and the other thing. So she gave me a test. I didn't know it was a test at first. She goes, I'm going to ask you a few questions, and these are the selected answers. You just pick one, and then we go from there. So she asked me 30-some-odd questions about how I feel, how things make me feel, yada, yada, yada. And I picked the answers. Now, what I didn't know, because she didn't tell me, was that each answer I gave had a corresponding number value. And at the end of the test, she would tally my points. And when we were done with the test, she tallied my points up, and I had scored a 31. I was two points shy of having full-blown PTSD, which is a good thing, because I really don't have full-blown PTSD. I have all the symptoms of PTSD, which that in itself is not a good thing. So, she said that fortunately because of that, I would benefit not from drugs, because there's really not much they can give me. That would clarify my mind. I'm sorry if the pauses are me yawning because I'm sleepy. So she recommended therapy. So now I'm going to start with her every week. And we're going to have chats. And we're going to see how I'm doing, how I feel. 
because for me, one of the biggest triggers that I have is smell. Smell can be a very powerful thing. Have you ever had an incident where you smell, let's just say, fresh bread baking? And it just takes you back to a time when your mom maybe made bread at home. And a person particularly good memory and all that. Well, for me, uh, olfactory sensory inputs have a whole different connotation. Uh, I explained to her that one time I was, uh, what was I? Oh, yeah, I was working at a warehouse, and we had just unloaded an 18-wheeler. And as the driver was leaving, he hopped back into his cab. He'd already closed the trailer. He hopped back into the cab of his truck, fired up his engines, and this huge cloud of diesel smoke wafted across the, the, the dock uh, floor. And immediately, I took a whiff, and for seconds, but it seemed longer than that for me, I was back on the boat, my boat, and it took a few seconds before I realized that I wasn't there anymore, I was here, but then it, what it did was a trigger, so now for the next week, it shook loose a lot of memories, and so I had trouble sleeping, I was very irritable. I was very nasty to be around. And that's one of the things with me, with my symptoms. I'm easily angered. I can go from zero to battle stations torpedo in a matter of seconds. It's that fast. If you have PTSD or you know somebody that does, you know what I'm talking about. It is uh, dangerous. Because if I go off, I may go off on the wrong person and end up getting killed or, or, or maimed or hurt really bad. So, uh, at least I know I have it. I, I was always right. I was right all along. I just, she said what's probably happened is over the 36 years, I've learned to deal with it. I'm never going to be cured of it. But I've learned to deal with it, and I learned to live with it. So now I have to go and convince the DAV that I've got something that I should be compensated for, and hopefully I can get back on track with that. If they would open at any time soon so I can get a call in and get my foot in the door. But that's where I'm at. So now I'm going to be in therapy with this doctor, and... Uh, see how things go. I don't know. I really, really don't know. I hope that it helps. It's just that I've never really had anybody to talk about it with. I mean, I run into other vets that have it, and, you know, we have a small passing conversation, but it really doesn't solve anything. And it's like I explained to her, look, if I, um, my goal is not to be another vet statistic of, of suicide, because I do have those thoughts sometimes. So, you know, I'm not crying, my nose is running. I think the African dust is already here. And uh, so that's my, the state of my emotional health right now. Now, it needs, to, it needs to have work done because she said that if I can't, have be, if I can't be thinking clearly, I'm going to have trouble with the transplant. Uh, I may have trouble with the kidney trying to get itself situated. Uh, I may have trouble with the uh, with the anti-rejection drug. I don't know. It could be a whole lot of things because my mind is not in cooperation with my body. Everything has to be working in sync. And right now, I have a couple of things that are out of sync, and I'm working on them. And hopefully, with the doctor's help, we can get them back in sync and get on with this and find me a donor. And once again, I'm going to mention donorship. If there are any, any of you out there that listen to my podcast and want to feel you're feeling all Abraham Lincoln and you want to give of yourself and you have two kidneys redundant systems you can live with one and you can give the other one up to somebody as a gift of life you may not be a match for me but you might be a match for somebody else and you may alter their lifestyle completely 
Living donors are the best donors because the kidney is alive and it's viable. Cadaver donors usually work 80% of the time, but they do have the most problem because they came from a dead person, a cadaver. So, and I've mentioned this before, but here's the thing. If you become a living donor, you pay for nothing. Your entire hospital stay and procedure, doctor visits, post-operation visits are all covered. You don't pay a cent. And because you are a donor, in the event you ever need a kidney, you automatically go to the top of the list because you were a donor, a living donor. So you should get first dibs on a new kidney if your old one uh, craps out on you. But hopefully you're healthy, you're not a heavy drug user or alcohol user, and uh, not a whole lot of scarring on your kidneys from, from life, and you can be a donor. It's a small incision on just on the back side of your of your of your side under the rib cage. They go in, snip snip the blood vessels, take the kidney out, open me up, stick the kidney inside my cavity, hook up the blood vessels, and let's find out if this is going to work. And that's it. You're in the hospital for about five six days, provided there are no complications and then they release you to home care and then you go about your life and I will go about my life with your kidney so it's a win-win for everybody so let's uh, put your fingers cross your fingers and hope for my my mental health to work itself out and uh, hope that all my ducks fall into a row and everything gets taken care of so I don't know, maybe the next installment will have, uh, I will go back over everything that's going on, the anarchy in the country, and uh, see where we go from there. Well, all right. Well, thanks for listening. There'll be more to come, so stick around. You're listening to the Chairland Chronicles. I'm not dead yet. I'm your host, Ben Hur. Thanks for listening. Stick around. we got more to come. And we're back. You're listening to the Chairland Chronicles. I'm not dead yet. I'm your host, Ben Hur. Thanks for sticking around and coming back with us. Okay, today is Wednesday. It is uh, June the 24th. And uh, I'm going to talk about what happened to me today. Okay, so I get up my usual time, 4 o'clock in the morning, start getting prepped for clinic. I leave the house usually around 10 after 5 takes me about 15-20 minutes to get there with the very light traffic that there is in the morning but because of the COVID the city of San Antonio has been fixing every road and every everything that needs repair or maintenance is being done so there are roadblocks everywhere you don't believe me? get out there and hit, hit uh, uh, Goliad Road hit downtown, anywhere downtown, and you'll see roadblocks, cones, barricades, everything. Uh, one of the things they're doing is they're chewing up San Saba Street, I guess to resurface it, but that's going to take God knows months, and it's only a football field long, if anything, from, uh, what is it, Nueva to Martin, so your guess is as good as mine when they're going to finish that. So anyway... I'm rolling to the clinic, and I get there, and I got a real bad habit, and I need to break it. I need to start paying attention to what goes on at the front of the building before I, I drive up. I drive into the parking lot, get my ticket, find my spot and park, and I get my things. I forget my mask. I got to run back to the car and get it, and I'm walking up the, the walk. And I hear voices. And I look in the, there's a, the blinds were open in the clinic. I look in, there's nobody in the clinic. Well, actually, there's one person, there, the nurse, the staff nurse that's on duty. And uh, I walk up, and I see the reason there are, I hear voices is because about uh, eight of us are outside 
in the not in the lobby, but outside and outside of outside of the outside in the foyer, I guess you could say. And they're talking amongst themselves, and I say, "Okay, what's the excuse today?" So my friend Johnny pipes up that they're having water issues, and then Galvan says, "And yeah, and half the staff is not here." I'm like, "You're kidding me! Half the staff did not show up for work." He goes, "Yep." That would explain why when I looked into the clinic in the open blinds, I only saw the nurse. So, okay. And since, because of the COVID, they only let five or six people wait in the waiting room. So the waiting room's full. So the rest of us have to wait outside. And we're all pretty pissed because... We take the time to get up early, to get here at our a specific time, our prescribed time. Most of those people have been waiting there since 5 o'clock in the morning. I roll up about 5.30 and then I get called in pretty quick, but not today. So then my friend Elle comes rolling out and I haven't seen Elle in about two months because she comes earlier, they get her in and I don't see her, I don't get a chance to talk with her. But she's a pretty good friend and we converse a lot about movies and what goes on at the clinic so she told me she was talking with the nurse and he said he's not going to start the clinic until all of his staff is present how long that was going to take I do not know because I don't know how many hadn't called in yet and they're coming in piecemeal one every maybe 20-30 minutes Oh, and then the water issue was never mentioned again. I don't think, I think that's their excuse, their crutch, is that there's water issues. But my thing has always been from the get-go, if I'm going to run a dialysis clinic, guess what I'm having? I got th- I'm going to have three major water supply lines. If two get shut down, I got a third one, a redundant one, to run, to keep everything going. I came from the United States Navy. I came from the submarine force. Submarines have redundant systems so that if something craps out because of war injury or just craps out, you've got other systems to back it up. Backups upon backups, that's a way of the submarine. Navy ships are no different. They got backups upon backups too. If you never, if you don't know, ask a person that's been in the Navy. They got backups on backups. So I would make sure that I had water and water was never going to be an issue. Also, I would have a staff pump plumber. A plumber that's on staff 24 hours a day that's going to be there to get make sure the water's flowing. Because water is life. Water makes the machines run. Water makes us run. So, needless to say, we're all pissed. And here's the thing. When we all get together outside, we bitch. Bitch, bitch, bitch. Because we talk. This is the only chance we have to chat with each other. And... Uh, say what really goes on because they really don't listen to us they really really don't I mean we I, I'll if when it comes to me I'll bitch at Albert the facility administrator because I think he listens to me at least when I bitched at him he's I saw results pretty quick the next day because the only other person to bitch to is Dr. Masari the guy that runs the whole shebang now he swears up and down from people that I've that I've talked to that have actually gone to his office and, and bitched at him that he gets to the bottom of the problem. He gets it solved so that way his patients are no longer bothered. Because it was explained to me that all the technicians, all the nurses, everybody is here for our, for our pleasure to make sure that we get treated properly, safely, and securely. So today was one of those things where, and this is, this is my perspective because, like I say, and I've told Albert this. When I sit there for four hours, I've got nothing better to do than to watch what you and every technician and every nurse is doing. From where I sit, I can see the entire room. And I can see who's screwing off, who's, uh, who's shouldn't, who should be doing something and isn't. Uh, sometimes I, and I, you know, look here, I give the technicians a lot of credit. They're on their feet a lot, all day. I mean, sometimes they're there, they put in a 15, 16 hour day. Yeah. They're there from 3 in the morning, then somebody closes at 8 o'clock, 8.30 at night. 
So they're there for what? That's a 12, 30, 40, 15, 16, 16 hours. Yeah, that's rough. And you're on your feet most of the time. But sometimes I see them get together in little clusters and start telling each other dirty jokes or whatever. And I'm like, okay, I get it. It's a workplace. But it's a medical workplace. And as from what I've seen in hospitals and whatnot, there's always somebody that cracks the whip. There's always an overseer that cracks a whip and keeps the troops in line because you have to. When you don't, you have anarchy. Just like here, you got people burning down, tearing down statues, burning down police stations. Anarchy. Anarchy. But when, you, when somebody's in charge and there's a little bit of fear because of retaliation, write-ups, firings, they tend to fall in line and not do stupid stuff. Once again, I have a lot of respect and admiration for the techs and the nurses. They do a good job, but sometimes they fall flat because they're human beings. I get it. Uh, I've seen people pass out, vomit, uh, or just generally collapse. And sometimes they do go into panic mode. Oh yeah, you can see the facade is trying to be cool, calm, and collected, but you know they're they're biting their back teeth because it's like, oh my God, what do we do now? Well, you're a trained medical professional. You should know what to do, especially the nurses. You know, when a technician calls for a nurse, the nurse should say, I'm there. Not just, a minute, I'm, I'm pouring I'm pouring protein drinks. No, drop that shit and get over and see what's, what's wrong with the, with the patient. That's your job. And... I talked to my text, and they've told me some very, very serious stories that'll curl your toes. I mean, because it's like, this is a dialysis clinic. You know, does this happen in a dentist's office? I'm sure it does, but uh, I think they deal with it a lot better. I don't know. But anyway, so... I missed a treatment today. I came home, you know, it's like, here, here's my thing. I get there at 5.30, pretty much on the dot. And if they're waiting outside, I don't give them more than 15 minutes. If nobody's come out to talk to me or, or address this, the situation and tell us what they're doing about it, I walk. I leave because, hey, this is the way I see it. I got up. I got ready. I prepared myself to come to sit and do this crap for four hours. But you're not ready? That, that dog don't hunt. They don't fly. It doesn't work that way. You got to be here. You got to be ready to play. The game goes on as scheduled. So me being me, I'm an instigator. I start rallying, rallying other people up because that's what I do. Because one day I would like all these people to shed their, their little sheepskin and say, yes, Ruben, let's go upstairs and talk to Dr. Masari. And I'll say, let's go. But you better damn well talk. Because I'm not going to sit there and go and open my mouth and then have you shy away because you decided you're, you're at the last minute. You don't want to do that. No, it needs to get done. And when more people do it, it has a bigger, more profound effect. If you don't fix this, we're all going to go to another clinic, Fresenius or somewhere, somewhere else. And guess what? All that money that you make now, you're going to lose. And when other patients find out why you, you lost 15, 20 patients all at one shot... Well, they may not decide to use your clinic. I love my doctor. He's a great guy. But when the business decides to be a corporation and then we suffer for it, that's not, that's not good. That is very bad business. Because I am your business. Your business thrives on me and everybody else that comes in in the morning, you stick. They do about... 250 patients a day. I would, I would I would say conservatively. That's on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. They have the same amount that come in on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. So they have a lot of people to take care of. And this is a fairly large clinic, 25 beds, or 25 chairs, I'm sorry. There are other clinics in town that are smaller. One that in city base, I think, only has 12 chairs. There's one, I think, on the north side that only has seven so, this is by far one of the bigger clinics in the U.S. renal system. 
but I hear there are other bigger clinics elsewhere that are in the 50 to 75 range of chairs. That's a lot of people to be dialysizing. But by the same token, for that company, it's a lot of money to be made. And that's one of the bitches I heard from, from one of my chairmates. That, I mean, so he, he looks at his Medicare bills too when they come in because he knows they bill us about $150,000 to $167,000 a month. A month. Well, maybe Medicare only sends them a check for half of that because they know the other half of the bill is bogus. Because you can't really charge all that much for the tubing, the needles. The machines are already fairly pretty much paid for uh, with just one day's worth of sessions. So it's a very lucrative business. But if you don't take care of your business, if you cause your patients uh, alarm and mistrust, we're gone. Oh, yeah, you can say there'll be another one to, to, to replace them coming along, but you're going to have the same problem if you don't fix it. Now, the, the FA, the facility administrator, is, is a good guy. He know, he's, he's got his job down well. And when, the, when he's there, let me, uh, this I will assure you, when he's there at 4 in the morning running the show, everybody's there on time. All the patients get seen quickly. They get in and hooked up quickly. When he's not there and he puts one of the other nurses in charge, that's when it starts to get lack, like today. Half the staff doesn't show up. Why? I don't know. They all overslept, maybe? Or maybe they just said, oh, screw it. We could so-and-so running the show today. We can slide. Well, one, maybe two can slide. But when half the staff, when, when four of your technicians don't show up, just not to show up, if I'm the FA, the facility administrator, I'm writing all those people up. And I may even write the charge nurse up because this is your responsibility to get on the phone and get those people here. I know as a manager, that's one of the things I would be charged to do if I have people at work that didn't show up for their shifts. I'm on the phone. Why are you not here? What is the reason? Are you dying? Are you dead? Are you in a car wreck dying? I need to know why. You just don't show... No show, no call is grounds for termination. If it had been me running the show, half those people would I would have just terminated. I, I don't need you. I'll get other technicians. I have other people that want to work, and they want to show up for work on time. That's part of the work ethic. This is the problem here. People are like, I, I'm tired. I don't want to. I don't want to go to work. Well, if you're in a in an industry like this one where you are required to be there, you better damn well be there. So, I don't envy the job that Albert has because you have some people that need to go. I've been telling him this since he got since he started at the, at the clinic. Let me tell you what, what I think you should, the direction you should go, who you should get rid of. Because you get rid of the dead weight, you'll get, you keep the good ones, and the good ones will figure, oh shit, I don't want that to happen to me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mind my P's and Q's and get my job done. A little fear is, it never hurts to keep people in line and in check. Write-ups keep people in check. And at the point, if they don't like it because they think you're, they're, they're, you're, they're being harassed, well, let them go. Get it quit. And when they call us from your next job, what we think of you, I'm going to tell them. Untrustworthy, unreliable, I wouldn't waste my time. So now, on the other side of that coin, I was thinking about this. I've been at this clinic on San Saba for a year, April, a year and two months, 14 months, about as long as I was working on the radio when I was at KTSA. I was at the Rosa Verde Tower Clinic for a year and a half before they transferred everything over to this one. Now, when I was at Rosa Verde, in a year and a half, I only missed one treatment. The only reason I missed a treatment is because my technician had gotten strep throat. She didn't come in, so they couldn't accommodate me. So, okay, no big deal. I waited till my next my next time. Since I've been at this clinic for 14 months, I've missed six treatments. 
One treatment was missed because that was probably my my fault when I got into it with a security guard and with a nurse over my mask. But the other five times were because they were having water issues. Now, I tell I tell my chairmate straight up when I'm there when we're all out there bitching at about the whole situation. How much longer are you guys going to wait? I said, when was the last time? They, anybody came out to talk to us and they said nobody's come out I had to go in and find out so nobody's coming out that's even worse when they don't come out and tell you what's going on so that's why if everybody's waiting outside because they're having an issue with something I give them no more than 15 minutes of my time and then I leave and then they don't even ask me anymore because they already know how I work. And they, they, I just say, hey, guys, I'm leaving. Good luck. And I leave. Uh, as I was leaving, I ran into Mr. Queen. He was sitting in his truck deciding whether he was going to go or where he was going to stay. So he, he's talking to me. He goes, you going? I said, yep. I only give these people 15 minutes if, they're not, if they ain't got their shit together. And then I leave. He goes, are you going to come back tomorrow for treatment? I says, no, I do not. I do not give them accommodations. And I've told Albert this. If you make me, if you make me miss a treatment, I will not come back to make it up on the next day. I will be back on Friday because that's my next scheduled day to come in for a treatment. If you guys miss this one because you screwed up, well, that's on you. You just don't. You just you can't bill me for the day, and you lose money. I don't care. And if Dr. Masari doesn't like it, well, he can call me to his office and I will tell him, you need to get your head out of your ass and quit running this place like a corporation and run it like a medical clinic, which is what it is. At least the last time I checked, that's what it is. Or the next call I make is going to be to the state health department and I'm going to bitch about how you run a really shoddy clinic. And then the next thing you know, you're going to have the state crawling up your ass with a microscope and God knows what else. And, and clean you out. I I may sound a little fanatical, but I take this crap seriously. This is my life. This is my lifeblood. And I was thinking as I'm driving home from the clinic, what if, or no, not in a what if, yeah, it's a what if, but why isn't there a congressman or a senator who is on dialysis. We are an un underrepresented section of the population. And somebody could really benefit us by representing us the way we need to be represented. And then I started thinking, hmm, number one, how do I run for Congress? How do I build a base? And I think I'm probably gonna reach out and send an email to Henry Cuellar who I met some years ago, and he's a, he's a pretty good guy, even if he is a Democrat. And he's a pretty successful politician. Who knows? Ben-Hur goes to Washington? Maybe. Maybe not. Well, that's the events of the day. You saw what's out there on TV, what's still burning, what's still being torn down. I don't have to go into that yet anyway. But I do have a very, very special conspiracy theory about all this. And it starts back in 2008. But I've bored you enough for the past 21 minutes. I think I'm going to shoot down this segment, call it a night. So you guys are listening to the Chairland Chronicles. I'm not dead yet. I'm your host, Ben Hur. Stick around. We'll be right back with more show. And we're back. You're listening to the Chairland Chronicles. I'm not dead yet. I'm your host, Ben Hur. Thanks for sticking around and coming back with us. Well, today, oh, a little a little trend that I've just recently noticed over the past week or so. It's probably been going on longer, but I just now started putting two and two together. Uh, I've seen a lot of commercials for mental illness since the gist of this 
week's uh, episode started with mental mental health, and I covered that in my last uh, segment. Uh, it's been very, very interesting. I've seen commercials for schizophrenia. And there was a time, maybe there still is, that schizophrenia was the worst thing to have. Because when you mention schizophrenia, he's got schizophrenia, watch out. You conjure up visions of a man laughing in the, in the middle of a rainstorm, just laughing maniacally. And you're like, what's wrong with him? Or you see the guy walking down the street constantly looking over his shoulder telling somebody to shut up imaginary an imaginary voice or he's, he'll tell you that he's talking to God and then I say like, who am I to judge right maybe he is talking to God and of course he's the only one that can hear him but mental illness is starting to take a forefront of uh, in health I guess there are a lot more people that are sicker than we thought because I've just recently admitted to the fact that I have PTSD, which explains a whole lot of stuff, especially if you know me, that I had a tendency to fly, Still, I still do, to fly off the handles at an alarming rate. But there are many, many other commercials that I've seen. I've seen commercials for bipolar disorder, uh, which is another, uh, what they used to call manic depression, depressive where you would swing like a pendulum from one extreme to the other. You would be one day, you would be happy, normal, and the next day you're building a fort out of mattresses that uh, people have abandoned to cut yourself off from the world. I mean, even I, because of my PTSD, got a lot of paranoid a lot of times to the point where, you know, I'd have to get a tinfoil hat to keep all the radio signals from bouncing off my head yeah and, I, and to admit it I look like a big Hershey's kiss with uh, on top of my head walking around but mental illness is no longer that crazy uncle or crazy grandfather that would stay in the corner of the room in the dark and nobody would go up to see him mental illness is real people with real issues and they need real solutions. My father has schizophrenia. My father is not a well man. But the biggest problem that most people suffering with a mental illness is that there is nothing wrong with them. There's something wrong with the rest of us. That's it in a nutshell. So they refuse to seek treatment. I've even seen my dad refuse treatment from his own medical doctor. Because the doctor knows there's something wrong with him. Because, like, look, I can, I can get you these medications. And so they prescribe medication. My dad doesn't take the medication because he's afraid. Of, he thinks they're going to try to poison him. So that's where the craziness comes in. And for the most part, he's fairly rational. But when he gets angry and he thinks everybody's ganging up on him, maybe he hears the voices still. I don't know. I don't know. Um... Uh, I've known people with bipolar depression. There's another illness out there called borderline personality disorder. And if you want to imagine, the best way to explain this illness is, is uh, draw a big circle. On the outside of the circle, draw a bunch of little circles. And in those little circles, let's say you write one, you call it schizophrenia. Another little circle you write bipolar another uh, circle you write depression depressive so this is basically what borderline personality disorder looks like it's one illness that touches on symptoms of a whole bunch of other illnesses it's like uh, a big blender of all the uh, mental distortions that a person can have multiple personalities that's another one uh, so it's treatable and this illness mostly affects women 45% of the female population has borderline personality disorder but they've never been diagnosed that's the problem is you have to go in and get diagnosed and then you have to accept that you've got some sort of mental disorder once you convince yourself of that 
That's when the healing truly begins with any mental disorder. And the healing begins, and if necessary, in some cases, with the extreme, extreme nature of the diseases, medication, usually oral medication. Now, in my case, I got the latter, which is therapy, because that's what my doctor recommended for me, not drugs, but therapy, which for me starts Tuesday, and, uh, well... I'm on the road to some sort of recovery. So, mental illness is a very serious thing. If you know somebody that suffers, urge them to seek help. That's the first step. That's the hardest step to have them admit there is something wrong with them. You know, when you go into the doc, see the doctor. I, I asked the doctor once because I asked him questions. And I asked. One of my doctors, what is the worst thing that you have to do as a doctor? And I never really considered the question when I heard the answer. And the answer was telling somebody that they're going to die. That is a tremendous kick in the teeth. Or another sensitive part. To have, I'm pretty sure it's just like the one the when my podiatrist told me that I had to amputate my toe. There was no second guessing until I got second guessed by another doctor that saved the toe. But you have to get diagnosed. And you know, let's say you think you have something wrong with you, go and get it checked out. Find a psychologist or a psychiatrist to evaluate you. You may not have a disorder at all. You may just be a angry person. But there's help. there's treatment for that, for anger management. For people that are extremely angry, you can have anger management uh, therapy. But the doctors are out there, and the treatments are out there, and the cures are out there. But you got to get their foot in the door. Uh, it's not easy. That's the hardest part. Especially when that loved one is in your care and you have to figure out a way to get them. And usually you can get help from your medical, their medical doctor and just ask them what are the alternatives, what can they do, da 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 da. And the doctors will help you because they understand your dilemma. A lot of people say, oh, the doctors don't care. They do. They honestly do care. But we start to believe all the hype that we see when we hear other people talk about all oh, the doctors this and the doctors that. Doctors are people too. They have the same fears and desires and, and, and craziness that we do. But if you ask them in a, in a good way, they will be very professional about it and they will try to help you. That's their job. If they don't, or if you think they're not trying to help, get another doctor. You don't. You can always go and find a second, third, fourth opinion until you find the person that you can trust and get your loved one the, the attention that they need to get them on the right track to enjoy the rest of their life, not to live in fear, not to live looking over their shoulders and yelling at the night sky or, or laughing maniacally in the rain as it pours down over them it doesn't have to be that way or turning them out into the streets because you don't know what to do with them anymore there are things that can be done that's why there's a lot of homeless people that have mental illnesses because nobody wanted to deal with them anymore or they didn't want to put their families through what they were putting them through it is uh crazy to put it bluntly but this is our current state of uh, society so anyway there's a lot of commercials for a lot of mental illnesses out there and there's a lot of help you just gotta go and find it well, all right, I guess that's going to wrap up this episode of the Chairland Chronicles. I'm not dead yet. And as always, as I close all my episodes, even my blog, 
Live your life as if it was your last day on this earth. Live for others, live for your family, your children, your grandchildren, and for yourself. Laugh at all you see around you. Not that life is a big joke, but it never hurts to laugh and smile. And the biggest person you have to laugh at is yourself. And of course, the last but not least is love. Love all the world and everybody in it. Doesn't matter what color, what creed, or what ethnicity they are. They are your brothers and sisters. And love yourself. Look at yourself like a crazy man in the mirror and say, I love you. And then believe it. Live, laugh, love. That's what it's all about. Thank you for listening to the Chairland Chronicles. I'm not dead yet. I'm your host, Ben Hur. That will conclude this episode. Thank you for listening. Thank the people at Anchor Radio for spreading my podcast all around. And all those of you that listen to me and put up with my insane rantings, ravings, and crap. I love you all dearly. I would not be able to do this if it wasn't for your support. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you feel. I am at crackglass60 at yahoo.com. That's my email address. I'm going to set up a website and an email address directly for the show so you can contact me directly and ask me questions. I would love to answer questions on the on the air, so to speak, and uh, let the people know what your thoughts are. So thank you for listening to the Chairland Chronicles. I'm not dead yet. Stick around. We'll be back with another episode next week. These are the Chairland Chronicles. I'm not dead yet. Signing off.